0: The Urbanist is brought to you in association with the Department of Culture and Tourism Abu Dhabi. Sadiaq Cultural District Abu Dhabi is a beacon of hope and inspiration.
1: A catalyst to spark growth and collaboration with museums and experiences, where art and science and nature and technology coexist. The belief of Abu Dhabi that culture is the backbone of our society. Stay tuned for a special episode of the show in which you can hear His Excellency Mohammed Khalifa al-Mubarak explain exactly why and how Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is the perfect place to collaborate, create and innovate. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi. Proud partner of The Urbanist on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to the Urbanist Monocle's programme all about the built environment. I'm your
2: host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up. How can the mechanisms and the structure of hip-hop, which have manifested into global superstars, have manifested into changing popular culture in and of itself, how can we use that as a tool to invest in our communities? We speak to an
1: expert on the intersection of music and the city to hear how the culture of hip-hop has been a vehicle for good urban development. We also visit the site of a new mega project looking to transform Athens' old airport and Olympic grounds. And we speak with a company who is employing data science to reduce the impact of flooding and landslides in our cities. That's ahead in the next 30 minutes here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. Earlier this year, the music genre hip-hop, which has come to form an entire culture, celebrated its 50th anniversary. The movement has united musicians, dancers and artists for decades, but it's also been a vehicle for economic development and community support. Shane Shapiro is a regular guest on The Urbanist, speaking about music and its importance to all aspects of our cities. Recently, aside from writing a book, Shane has been running a non-profit called The Centre for Music Ecosystems, and I'm happy to say that Shane found the time, amongst all of that, to join me recently to talk about the importance of hip-hop. I began by asking Shane if I could sense a bit of frustration in his voice at the extraordinary work being done by musicians, especially hip-hop artists, that is so often overlooked.
2: Yeah, I'm not frustrated, it may come off sometimes as frustration. <laughs> let's, let's call it passion, yes. masked as frustration. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm more optimistic now than I've ever been. I think COVID is, a, in the worst possible way, it's an amazing case study in why music matters. Because imagine COVID without music. Imagine COVID without other forms of culture. It gave us the ability to congregate when we weren't able to congregate. But, you know, the ubiquity of music, the fact that it never goes away and it's all around us all the time, does make us take it for granted. And, and then you add on other social and cultural issues, history, racism, classism, all sorts of things. It gets compounded into working to improve our communities and invest in our communities. How many of us are completely ignoring the amazing opportunities that hip hop as an art form, a culture and obviously a suite of genres of music can offer cities. Well, there's the broad brushstroke. Give us a very simple example where we can see the evidence of
1: how hip-hop has helped communities.
2: For example, there's a lot of successful rappers who are kind of one man or woman economic development agencies. So Killer Mike is one example.
3: If you're a leader and you really mean something to your people, ain't you supposed to be in the community with your people? Ain't you supposed to be there? Like the only people I see in the communities are rappers and ball
2: He's part of the duo Run the Jewels. He also records on his own, but he has invested in black and brown and, and minority businesses in Atlanta, where he's from, started with investing in a barbershop franchise, and he created a, kind of an entrepreneurial co-working hub, which led to a digital bank specifically for black, brown, and, and Latino entrepreneurs in Atlanta. And his investments are local economic development. It's the same thing that economic development organizations, chambers of commerce, And these types of business organizations whose job is to invest in, you know, the root and branch of our economies. And his money was earned from hip hop. And there are many, many examples of that. He is, you know, one of many. Now, the U.S.
1: is very different to... Europe in many ways and one of the ways in the US often a philanthropist can step in do lots of projects that don't even need to work with with City Hall that they do their thing you know we see an artist like Theaster Gates in Chicago just independently minded good at delivering projects for these same people are they working with the system or are they kind
2: of outside the system just doing their own thing do you think? It's a bit of both. So, you know, Chance the Rapper is working with the system in Chicago. That's another American example. I wrote an article about how we need to reimagine hip-hop as local economic development. And let's break it down to what is local economic development? What literally is it? And it's a series of policies and investments and strategies and, and things that organizations do to either give money, time, space, or encouragement to people to create businesses. And often these systems are in place, ignore a lot of the cultural capital that can then be used to create more cultural capital in communities. And the world's most popular genre is hip hop. The genre that is in literally, and I say the word literally, literally every community in the world is hip hop. And it's also the, you know, it has a kind of low barrier to entry because you don't need a huge amount of training and skill to just start at the very, very, very low level. It's like being in a choir. And so I believe if we harness that value and we translate it and we say, okay, well, how can the mechanisms and the structure of hip hop, which have manifested into global superstars have manifested into changing popular culture in and of itself, how can we use that as a tool to invest in our communities? Because we're not really. And that's, not frustration that's me coming saying this is an incredible opportunity that we have in all our communities now
4: when you're at heaven's gates we're telling the lord you wouldn't even let a kid into some steadier shores that's a life they may never afford surely you would want to give your people chances that were better than yours no
1: in the article you point out that there have been some barriers for some of these entrepreneurs in the sense that often mainstream media or some civic leaders worry that you know, hip-hop is connected with violence. With the yeah. street is, is a bit too edgy for them to be involved in. And you point out that this is you know no more true than in for any other kind of genre of music. Do you think this has been an
2: issue for holding back some of the potential here? Very much so. Systemic and structural racism is one of the key issues. Whether it's implicit or explicit, the way that music and culture has been invested in Really, over the last, what, three or four hundred years, starting with patronage of royal families giving Mozart money to make a symphony. It's, things change very slowly, and certain people with certain tastes have made the decisions over a long period of time. And sometimes when you don't understand a genre of music, or you don't listen to a genre of music, you don't see the inherent social and cultural value. It's just an expression of a human being's lived experience. Because it's interesting, I, you know, I I was trying to think of other US examples and you know that
1: some of the, the country music stars have reputations for giving to good causes and supporting communities you know, in the South, but they're, they're lauded always for what they do. And maybe there, do you think that's, there's something about hip hop that first of all, people question it more than, for example, another genre of music?
2: Yeah, I don't want to sugarcoat it. The way that we invest in our cities and places in the United States, in Canada and the UK, continental Europe tend to be made historically by people who, who may be new to hip hop or may not understand hip hop. Hip hop's also a new genre. It's only been around for 50 years. This year was its 50 year anniversary. And it's a lot newer and a lot less understood, you know, than a lot of other genres. But it frankly comes down to allocation of resources and, you know, cities in America have been built and designed through systemic and structural racist policies. You know, and I, I just I wanna flip it on its head and, and treat this as an opportunity, right? It may not be understood simply because it hasn't been explained in that way.
0: From the
5: when Nina about the life we should lead a new another deed I tried to do some
0: good. I felt more Mississippi was. They Nina Philadelphia and still we like all the four hundred So
1: give us a few from the hip hop rule book for urban
2: development. One of the two of the things you would take for a, a hip-hop urbanism rulebook? First is never assume. So we all assume things, we all come at things with our own unintentional biases. And assuming the type of culture that would make sense for a community's redevelopment tends not to work. It needs to be based on data and evidence. The second is space doesn't need to be complicated. Space doesn't need to be expensive, especially when it comes to Hip hop and and related culture, spoken word, breakbeat, dance, that kind of stuff. It's making space available to communities, even if it's, you know, in a basement or it's in an area with less footfall can have significant additional benefits and measuring things as well. So not just doing something because you think it's the right thing to do, but putting in a structure that you can measure the economic and social impact of what you're doing so you can tweak stuff. I think, like anything, if we care about something, then we put time and effort into understanding it. But the examples of the value that hip-hop brings to our communities are everywhere. They're our world's biggest stars right now. And Britain is really, really good at it. It just, we tend not to put two and two together, where we, A, see the genre as an economy in and of itself, and then see that if we're going to sustain and grow that economy, then that economy needs infrastructure, policy, investment, and understanding.
1: Now, as well as consulting and as giving advice to all sorts of institutions, you've managed to somehow turn out a book as well, which is called This Must Be The Place, How Music Can Make Your City Better, and it's just coming out. Now you're doing a book tour. Just tell us before we we wrap up today, what's the, the thrust of the book and what's the ambition of the book?
2: Yeah, well, the book really just outlines how music improves and impacts our communities and how we, if we think about music more as infrastructure, so we think about building it into planning policy and building it into the decisions that we take to invest in our communities, then it has wide-ranging benefits, economically, socially, and culturally. The book really is 10 years of working. I've worked in about 130 cities around the world in 30 plus countries, helping them, what I hope, understand the value of music mainly to produce economic data to explain how it works and how it all fits together. So the book tells the story of the mistakes that I've made, but also what I've learned, and provides a blueprint for any community, regardless of size, regardless of where they are, based on what I've seen work around the world, to begin to understand how music can improve their economic social and cultural
0: policies Shane Shapiro
1: thanks for joining us here on the urbanist. Athens' Elinikon Airport was once a glamorous aviation hub, with jet setters touching down at the Aero Design Terminal Building on the turquoise shores of the Athenian Riviera. But as tourism continued to grow, the airport couldn't keep up with demand, and it was replaced by a newer, larger one on the eastern outskirts of Athens. After closing its doors in 2001, the airport and the surrounding land fell into disuse. But now a new radical project run by development firm Lambda, which purchased the land a decade ago, is aiming to transform this area, twice the size of Monaco, into a flashy new residential and business hub, boasting buildings by world-renowned architects and vast swathes of new parkland. Monaco's Hester Underhill met with Lambda's CEO, Odysseus Athanasio to find out more. And she began by asking how the project hopes to capture the spirit of Greece.
4: We think that we live in a, in a place that is very open to the way people live. Meaning that uh, because, first of all, of the weather, we can go out most of the year. You live in places that have balconies, again, because of the weather. I think the environment, growing up in an environment that has the ocean all around it, or the sea anyway, the Mediterranean, makes you also more open in your attitude and everything. At the same time, there is safety which means you can go out at night without having to think what's going to happen to me. This is very, very important. And uh, it leaves also people of younger age, like 14, 15, 16, to go out alone from anywhere, especially in the South suburbs where we have the sea. Entertainment apparently is in the spirit uh, of the Greek culture and talking with each other. And this uh, project incorporates the element of neighborhood because there are going to be residences but at the same time inside the neighborhoods you're going to have retail you're going to have the place that you work very close to you you're going to have the sports so all this closeness and proximity is part of you know the greek openness that people talk to each other and they like relationships
3: so the tower is 50 stories high the tower designed by foster and partners the riviera tower Are you worried it's going to be by far the tallest structure within the entire vista surrounding it? Are you worried that it will look out of place?
4: Look, this is an area about two times the size of Hyde Park. So we're talking bigger, right? We have permit to build five high-rise towers like the one you're referring to in different parts of the development. So there are going to be five. I think it's good we don't have many because you would have a different situation, right? And I think it's good that you don't have only one. And because this one that you refer to is on the coastline and there's nothing so close to it to live in, I don't think it's going to tower anything to make someone feel uncomfortable. We gave a lot of thought to all these things when we designed the master plan with Foster because we knew we had an extra challenge here. If you develop this thing, let's say, in a developed city like London, like uh, Paris, New York, you name it, right? Or even East, in Dubai. People have already seen that and they know why they buy what they buy and these places have credibility here especially when we started this in 2014 we did the master plan we were in the in the bottom of our credibility to the international world perception was very bad for Greece, so we knew how to do something exceptional this is how it all started were
3: there any developments that inspired the Elenicon in any way any kind of blueprint for the project
4: As I said, first of all, we had foster and partners seen many things. So we gave the vision, the direction. We wanted to be green. We wanted to have low density. We wanted to have a characteristic that is not very different from the Greek openness that we talked about before. If you ask me on a personal basis what I have seen and I like, I was always jealous of the big green parks abroad. Hyde Park, uh, there's another, a nice park in Spain. El Retiro, very nice park. Yeah. There's Central Park, of course. But also I had seen Stanley Park in Vancouver, which is a very big park, in front of the sea. It was very nice. I thought, why not have something like this? The other thing, in terms of an individual building, development and area, I was inspired by Marina Bay Sands in Singapore, in this bay of Singapore. There was an empty place and they developed this. They made this three building tower with a pool, sitting at the top of it, on 200 meters, and the area around it was open next to the sea with very impressive uh, architectural landmarks. So, if you ask me personally, this was. But I'm sure Foster, you know, when we worked together, had seen many, many things to develop the master plan.
3: Do you feel like there's a kind of appetite among these kind of architects to work in Greece now? That the country, you know, you mentioned the brain regain, the economy is growing, to be part of reshaping a city when it's still in this period of growth and change.
4: That's a very sensitive subject because, to tell you the truth, I was wrong at the beginning when we invited international names in our tenders. I thought everybody's going to come because we're paying, we're the client. But as you said, these names are looking also for credibility and whether or not something is going to be built or it's worth going there. So it was not so easy at the beginning. In Riviera Tower we got four names in the short list, all four names were big. Now, there's a big appetite for our projects. I mean, we have many names competing every time we bring a big project. In small residential, by the way, in small residential, Greek architects, the new generation is impressive. Many of the buildings you will see next time you're here will be designed by Greek architects. I'm talking about a residential of a certain size, not the high-rise tower. In terms of other projects, apart from Elínikon, we had the Niarchos Foundation developing the Opera and the National Library, just 10 minutes from Elínikon. I don't know if you have seen this. This was designed by Reggio Piano. Reggio Piano is also doing something else from the Niarchos Foundation, as we speak, a hospital, there are some hospitals in North Greece, designed by him, and Nearchos Foundation does a donation to the Greek state, these hospitals. And um, also there are a couple other architects that I know, they are in discussions with, like Bjarke, who is in discussion for some other projects. So apparently this project is gonna put Greece on the map big time, especially, think about it, in two years, most of these things will be, if not completed, up in the sky.
3: In terms of unblocking the streams that are gonna run through the Hellenicon was that always part of the plan or was that something added on later when, you know, these kind of climate catastrophes like extreme flooding became more prominent?
4: There we have very good technical studies because climate change was in our plans in 2014 and 15 when we worked with Foster. So when you do stuff like this, you take period ranges. So you say what is the probability in the next fifty years? We got hundred years for earthquakes, for floods, for fires, meaning for heat. So we feel We are well-protected. For example, we we open two streams and like a rectangular. So we have two streams, one here and one here, that go 10 meters depth and 15 meters wide. So we think this could absorb, for example, now in the latest flood that we had here, it was something totally unusual for us. And although this stream is not ready, part of this is ready, and still it didn't overflow the water.
3: It was said in the presentation that 75,000 jobs are going to be created through the Elenicon. So are these permanent jobs Working in the, the mall, for example, in when it opens hotel, in hotels,
4: casino.
3: right? And is this including the construction jobs as well?
4: It includes the 10,000 construction jo- jobs, but based on estimates of consultants, these 70,000 jobs are going to be permanent jobs in the operational El Nico. So the construction jobs are going to be there until, let's say, 2035, 2040, whenever this thing is totally done, but most of the jobs let's say if we take 75, the 70,000 jobs are going to be in everything else, the, the malls, the hotels, the maintenance of the park, the maintenance of the roads, the integrated road casino.
3: So what kind of businesses are you hoping might move in?
4: Many, because you know, in Greece, first of all, we have multinational commons, we have Greek commons, right? And we have many multinationals so who are not here. But the thing is, there is lack of large floor plates, usually they're smaller, also, they don't have the technology to incorporate the newest technology elements. And that's why we believe even businesses that have office buildings in Greece, either renting or owning them, they will move to Ellinikon. What we want is how is Défense in Paris, but much greener and much open. Because think about it. If you work in one of these buildings, you have the opportunity to live in Ellinikon and will have apartments for all price spectrum. So for someone at a lower level, some other, you'll be able to do the shopping. It's next to the new mall. You can take your bicycle and go anywhere, so why not to want to move there?
1: Odysseus Athenathieu there in conversation with Monocle's Hester Underhill.
3: Tonight, the view from above showing entire cities underwater
4: after a cyclone tore through southern Brazil. At least seven people have been killed amid uh, rainstorms which battered neighboring Greece, Turkey, and Bulgaria on Tuesday, triggering uh, flooding. Hong Kong grinds to a halt. Flash floods
5: break
2: century-long records. To Libya, the disaster unfolding there after a major storm unleashed devastating floods. Thousands are feared dead tonight. Large parts of the nation's most populous city, New York, were paralyzed today. Subway lines turned into waterfalls and buses looked more like boats. Residents are urged to stay indoors.
1: Over the past few months, a seemingly unprecedented number of devastating floods dropped centers across the globe from Libya to Greece to Hong Kong. The world has seen a massive increase in the number of natural disasters since the 1960s and flooding is the most common natural disaster since 1990. The power of water is going to be a challenge for cities to face over the coming years. Jonas Torilund is the chief commercial officer and one of the founders of Seven Analytics. The company uses their background in hydrology and geology to provide data and develop tools to combat floods and landslides. Headquartered in Bergen, the company is very familiar with how fluids interact with our cities, not only in the form of precipitation, but with Bergen's extensive coastline too. UNAS caught up with Monaco's David Stevens recently, and UNAS began by explaining the scale of the threat that flooding now presents to our cities.
5: Obviously we know that precipitation is increasing. And there's a lot of climate models showing that. I think in Bergen we have around twenty percent increased precipitation over the last 20, 30 years, which is a lot. But I think the big problem and uh, less understood problem is the urbanization part, because we've had projects getting old people, they've lived at the same place for 70 years, never experienced flooding. And then suddenly they get flooding every year. So they they call the municipality and they ask, uh, what is going on? And they say, yeah, well, you know, it's the climate change increased precipitation but that's not the answer we look at the the model we do the analysis we sit down with the municipality and it's all about what they have been building in the area so they have received uh, a new school uh, a new parking lot and basically the amount of water coming through that area is three times four times what it was before so that's in terms of the growing problem of floods i think we should really focus on limiting the urbanization part and taking that part into every equation when we are building out our cities. That's much more important than the than the decrease in precipitation. And uh, obviously the heavy rainfall part, you can get these cloud bursts more often, higher frequency. That's also a, a big issue, obviously.
0: Do you think we're in a situation where some cities, if they carry on the way they're going, might actually not be feasible places to live in a few years. I mean, I say a few, it's probably a few more than that. But do you think there's even that situation, whether those cities act now or not, that are going to end up maybe uninhabitable?
5: Yeah, I think we're seeing it already. Norway will probably be on the late side of that trend, but you see it already in the US, where, for example, California, they're withdrawing uh, insurances, housing insurance. And it's not very hard to calculate that if you live in an area which is getting more and more higher flood risk and it's not possible to insure your building, then at some point you will have to think about somewhere else to live. So I think when we're discussing where we can live in the future, we need the cities to do more. We need them to focus on every project to limit the amount of water we we let out of our land. But I think the insurance industry is also a key player here because if they start to pull out, then it gets really tough.
0: Can you maybe talk about the product that Seven Analytics offers? So what can you actually do to help cities that are trying to prevent flooding, damage, or trying to look ahead and be more wary of how water affects their city?
5: We have now a range of products. Everything is built on top of our uh, kind of robust way of handling data, reprocessing data. That's kind of the core of our business. We are going deeper and um, we have a focus I haven't seen too much before in terms of reprocessing and and digging into this data so that's the core of everything we do on top of that we have created a range of product we have our planning tool which is used in a new build to make sure that when you build something you can see how will you affect the area so you put up uh, these four buildings you can see where is the water flowing now where will it go after my project how much more water will i put out so that's Linked to the planning side. And we also have our, our real-time product, which is more to protect the buildings, so you can get warnings many days in advance. And that's a pretty advanced models. We used machine learning to take in all the precipitation that has fallen into the model every hour. Uh, we rerun our model on new terrain, every changes, new built, etc. So that's a pretty heavy model. And I think back to your previous question on where you can live. Pretty important for us to help the people and the businesses because you need to know the risk. And that's all about this real-time flooding model. So you can do mitigation, you can reduce the damage, you can move away equipment, you can push out some sandbags to lead the water safely to the recipient, etc. So that's two of the key products we have today.
0: And are you offering this data so that people are able to make their own informed decisions? Or are you kind of giving some recommendations on how a city might better tackle this problem?
5: It's a mixture of both. I think when we started out, we were building a SaaS solution like many other startups. But we see that decision makers today, they don't want to buy just software. They, they want to buy knowledge. So we have a pretty robust group. We have people with PhDs within stormwater management. So everything we do in terms of project, where we are using our planning tool, we are connecting our people as well and trying to learn from the project and trying to help the people because it's also a kind of a steep learning curve for the people working in the municipalities or the developers because this is not something they've done previously. They don't have that competence, so we're trying to build that as well. That's pretty important.
0: And just before we go, you were recently recognized by the Clinton Global Initiative. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what that recognition in particular was for?
5: Even though we're still um, kind of a startup in a scaling phase, we can't just go everywhere and help everyone. We need to build the company, but that's obviously our plan to go to every corner and help people because... If you look at where people have models and where they have good data, that's not where it's most needed. So uh, that's where we fit very good with the Clinton Foundation uh, initiative, because you just imagine refugees camps building projects in countries not as developed as uh, Norway, for example. They, They don't do this big analysis. We need better tools. We need a totally different toolbox for
1: the global scene. Younasturilund there in conversation with Monocle's David Stevens. And that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. Remember to sign up to the podcast to get new episodes direct to you every single week. The Urbanist is produced by Carla Trabello and David Stevens. And David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, well, here's a song that is often considered the first ever hip-hop track. Here's the Sugarhill Gang with... Rappers delight. Thank you for listening, city lovers.
2: I said a hip, hop, the hip, the hip, the hip, hip, hopper. you don't stop the rocket to the band, man, boogie. say up, jump the bogus to the rhythm of the beat. Now, what you hear is not a test. I'm rapping to the beat. And me, the groove, and my friends are gonna try to move your feet. You see, I am one of mic, and I like to say hello. Up to the black, to the white, the